Welcome back to Plane Crash Diaries, the podcast that investigates how aviation accidents have led inexorably to the extremely safe skies of today. I'm your host and pilot, Desmond Latham. Every week we tackle a different area of aviation, and this week it's the history of hijackings. The first ever hijacking of a commercial plane took place on the 16th of July, 1948. It involved a Catalina seaplane owned by Cathay Pacific and operated by a subsidiary Macau Air Transport Company registered in Hong Kong. At that time, Hong Kong was still a British territory. And ironically, the plane that took off from the sea was going to be affected by what was called piracy originally. The struggle between the nationalists and communists was in full flow. The civil war reverberated around the region and law and order had collapsed in many parts of China. The Miss Macau, as the seaplane was called, was on a routine flight from Macau to Hong Kong. In 1948, Macau was a Portuguese territory. But the plane never made it to the rapidly growing metropolis of Hong Kong. It was hijacked a few minutes after takeoff by four men, three armed with guns, one of whom demanded that the pilot surrender the controls. Just to add to the crazy scenario, he was from Mexico, but he was not Mexican. The pilot, an American by the name of Dale Warren Kramer, refused to hand over control to the hijacker, and that moment his co-pilot attacked one of the intruders with a flagpost rod. In the confusion, Kramer was shot dead and collapsed onto the flight controls. The plane went into an uncontrolled dive and crashed into the sea. Miraculously, one person survived by jumping out of the emergency exit as the plane hit the ocean. Unfortunately, it was one of the hijackers, although in a sense, some would say it was fortunate that at least someone survived to tell the story. 25 of the 26 people aboard died in the crash. Through this series, you're going to hear how often one person survives. It's more often than you think. The lone survivor, Wong Yi, confessed to being part of a gang of four pirates who attempted the hijacking. At the time, newspaper reports referred to the incident as an act of air piracy. Hijacking hadn't hit the aviation lexicon yet. The fierce resistance by the pilot and co-pilot caught the hijackers off guard because they believed once faced with firearms, these trained airmen would just give up. The object of the plot was to rob wealthy passengers and then hold them for ransom. At that time, it was known that most passengers were rich people who could afford the expensive trips on board the luxury known as commercial airliners. This sort of thing had been carried on for centuries around the world, but usually involved ocean-going vessels of some kind. Now it had moved to aircraft. Wong Yi was brought to court by the Macau police, but the Macau court suggested that the prosecution should be brought in Hong Kong instead, since the plane was registered in Hong Kong and most of the passengers were from there. But the British colonial government in Hong Kong stated that the incident happened over Chinese territory, in which the British had no jurisdiction, neither did the Portuguese. And the Chinese were not interested, they were far too busy in the protracted war between communist and nationalist. Since no state claimed authority to try him, Wong was released without trial from Macau Central Prison on the 11th of June 1951, three years after the fatal hijacking. He was then deported to China, which by then had become the People's Republic of China. We don't know what happened to him after that. Unlike today's modern communication of incidents, Cathay Pacific at the time had issued no statement after the hijacking and refused to say anything. Executives believed the facts were so fantastic that no one would believe their story and would summarize the crash as either caused by pilot error or that the plane had suffered a structural failure of some sort. But 
it was piracy, or rather, hijacking. This scourge would plunge aviation into crisis two decades later in the 1970s, when the Arab-Israeli conflict would spill over into the sector in a major way. The origin, though, of the gang of four that hijacked Miss Macau were linked to the Pearl River Delta, which had historically been a hotbed of piracy until the 20th century. Neither Imperial China nor its successor, the Kuomintang, was able to control it. The Royal Navy had tried and failed, and the civil war raging in 1948 made matters worse. Canton, or what is now known as Guangzhou, was still in nationalists' hands. Wang Yi and his three friends dreamed up the crazy scheme in a Macau tea house. All of them hailed from Guangzhou except one of the hijackers who came from Mexico. He was Chinese-Mexican. Yi was described as a baby-faced 24-year-old farmer who had decided to sell his rice paddy and take up piracy. Two of his three fellow hijackers had done the same, except for the one man called Tio Tok. He was the Chinese-Mexican. The Chinese-Mexico link is a bit of a surprise. It's even more fascinating when you hear that Chiu Tok had learned how to fly planes in Manila, the Philippines' capital. I don't have information about Chiu Tok and his aviation background, unfortunately. So, sipping tea in their regular tea house, they decided an easy option for piracy and a quick win would be to take a plane, hold the passengers hostage and then escape with a pretty penny. They had a cash reserve of $3,000, which meant they had more than enough to purchase firearms on the black market as well as plane tickets. Then they began looking for a target and found it in the Miss Macau Catalina seaplane, which flew regularly between Macau and Hong Kong. The link to the sea meant they made a short mental hop between seizing a ship of some sort and seizing a plane, particularly as the aircraft took off and landed on the ocean. It also meant they could hide the plane in one of the many inlets or bays and then send messages to family of the unfortunate passengers to cough up the ransom. That was the plan. After purchasing tickets, they climbed aboard Miss Macau on the 16th of July 1948 and then their carefully laid plans unraveled quickly when not only did the captain refuse to indulge their piracy fantasy, the co-pilot had the temerity to attack them inside the cockpit. But... Now we know there is an intersection between terrorism and hijackings. Witness the terrible incidents of 9-11 in New York, which killed almost 3,000 people and featured four different airplanes being hijacked in order to carry out the attack on the World Trade Center in 2001, as well as the Pentagon. A fourth saw passengers try to overpower the attackers and led to the plane diving into a Pennsylvanian field, killing all on board. So it's time for a history of hijackings. Every week in this series, we take a look back at a history of some part of aviation. This is one of the more odious forms of crime, a handful or sometimes a single person who takes an entire plane load of passengers hostage for some publicity or for money or because they're insane or their philosophy or ideology entails that they need to do this or combinations of the above. I'll deal with the outline of this form of aviation nightmare again, but for now, we're going to take a look at the broad history of hijackings. It became an epidemic in the late 1960s and early 1970s in the USA, for example. Most did not end like 9-11 and tragedy for thousands of people, but were largely idiosyncratic requests, particularly in America at first. I'll get to the far more dangerous examples of the Middle East-linked hijackings in a moment. But here's a fact to chew on. Between 1968 and 1972, there were more than 130 American airplanes hijacked, sometimes 
there would be more than one on a single day. This period is called the golden age of hijacking, in what must certainly be one of the more ironic contradictions in the sector. There were no scanners in those days or body frisking. You could even carry firearms on board until a little later. The United States has also been central in hijacker city. So these late 60s, early 70s versions were being driven by skyjackers, as they were known, demanding to be flown to Cuba. Monty Python did a skit on the riff at the time, which featured a pathetic example of a hijacker in the form of John Cleese holding an automatic weapon at a bus driver and demanding, take this bus to Cuba. Take this bus to Cuba. (laughs) (laughs) Initially, most airlines gave in and flew these men to Cuba. It was actually thought at the time that passengers would find metal detectors and frisking far more offensive than being diverted to Cuba and then a few hours later flown home. That was before it became far more deadly. How innocent these initial incidents were. Unfortunately, they morphed quite rapidly into very dangerous situations. The Palestinian Liberation Organization had become adept at hijacking planes in the 1970s, and their experience led directly to the terrible incidents of 2001, where the 12 hijackers seized four commercial airliners, flying two into the World Trade Center and a third into the Pentagon, as we've seen. So the first known hijacking between the USA and Cuba took place on April 9, 1958, when a Douglas DC-3 registration Charlie Uniform Tango 266 was en route from Jose Marti International Airport in Havana to Santa Clara Airport in California. Pilot Captain Armando Piedra of the Cubana de Aviación, excuse the pronunciation, was ordered by a single armed man to divert to Merida Rejon Airport in Mexico, where the hijack ended. This is considered the first hijacking to take place in the Western Hemisphere. These incidents were increasingly alarming. There were literally hundreds of examples, so I'll focus on some interesting ones. In July 1968, for example, the only successful LL hijacking attempt saw three members of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, who seized an LL Flight 426 from Rome to Tel Aviv. It was diverted to Algiers, where negotiations extended for 40 days, almost biblical. At the end, both the hijackers and hostages went free. But by 1969, this had become an epidemic, and authorities tried to clamp down. Those found guilty of hijacking were now called terrorists, and their prison sentences lengthened. On January 9, 1969, Ronald Boll, a 21-year-old Purdue University student, hijacked a Boeing 727 from Miami to Cuba, but returned to the U.S. via Canada on November 1, 1969. He was immediately arrested and then sentenced to 20 years for air piracy. A more prosaic example took place in March 1969, when Black Panther Tony Bryant hijacked a National Airlines plane en route from New York to Miami and directed it to Cuba. He was not welcomed by Havana, however. He was arrested in Cuba and spent 10 years in a Cuban prison after being suspected of being a CIA agent. The U.S. government pardoned Bryant after his return in 1980, and he wrote a book called Hijack, describing his experiences in the notorious Cuban prisons. Then, in July of 1969, a man took control of a DC-8 from El Paso, Texas, and ordered the pilot to fly to Cuba. He also tried to return home via Canada, and he was sentenced to 50 years in jail for air piracy. A more interesting example of air piracy took place in October of that year, 1969. It's not only known for Woodstock, and it's as known as the longest hijacking in history. 
a 19-year-old U.S. Marine by the name of Rafael Minitiello took control of TWA Flight 85 en route from Los Angeles to San Francisco. All passengers, including the rock band called Harper's Bazaar and three cabin crew, were released in Denver. The hijacker, three pilots and a cabin attendant, continued on to JFK Airport in New York, where two pilots were added for the overseas flight. The plane refueled in Bangor, Maine, and then Shannon in Ireland, before eventually landing in Rome, Italy. There, Minitiello took the chief of the airport police as a hostage and departed in a car and eventually tried to slip away. But he was caught shortly thereafter. His plan was to visit his dying father in Italy. Despite the cost to the airline, Italy did not extradite Minitiello and he served only 18 months in jail in the US. That covered 6,900 nautical miles, was the longest hijacking in history. In November of that year, 1969, the youngest hijacker on record by the name of David Booth was apprehended after he hijacked a Delta Airlines flight en route from Cincinnati to Chicago. Booth was 14. U.S. Attorney General George Klein of Lexington, Kentucky, declined to prosecute Booth, saying that the federal government did not have the facilities to handle prosecution of juveniles. Eventually, these incidents had to lead to deaths, and by 1972, they had become far more deadly. In July of 1972, for example, Pacific Southwest Airlines Flight 710 was hijacked by two Bulgarian immigrants shortly after takeoff from Sacramento, California, en route to San Francisco. The hijackers wanted $800,000 as well as two parachutes, and then they wanted to be flown to the Soviet Union. The hijacking ended on the runway in San Francisco when agents from the FBI stormed the plane, killing both hijackers and one passenger. Two other passengers were wounded. These were the first passengers killed and wounded in a skyjacking in the U.S. What characterized these examples mostly was the authorities' response. Initially, they'd used negotiating tactics with hijackers, and often the hijackers won. But it became clear that this soft approach was only attracting more riffraff to the business of plane piracy. Something had to change. The most famous example of a change and a successful ending for authorities was probably the July 27, 1976 incident at Entebbe in Uganda. Members of the militant organization's revolutionary cells, as well as the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, hijacked Air France Flight 139 on June 27th and flew to Entebbe Airport in Uganda. Israeli commanders assaulted the building holding the hijackers and hostages, killing all Palestinian hijackers and rescuing 105 others, mostly Israeli hostages. However, three passengers and one commander were killed. I'll return to this story in future podcasts, but it deserved a mention. Another that resonated for all the wrong reasons was the March 2, 1981 Pakistan International Airlines flight PK-326, which began as a routine domestic trip from Karachi to Peshawar, In midair, three heavily armed men seized the plane, diverted it to Kabul in Afghanistan, and demanded the release of 92 prisoners from the Pakistani jails. On March 7th, 29 hostages, including women, children, and sick men, were released, but the Boeing 720B sat in Kabul for a week. Eventually, the hijackers shot a Pakistani diplomat, Tariq Rahim, in full view of other passengers and threw his body onto the tarmac when it became clear the demands would not be met. Then in March 1988, Aeroflot Flight 3739 featured one of the most unusual examples of a hijacking. Virtually, the entire Ovechkin family, which included a mother and her 10 children, climbed aboard the TU-154 flight from Irkutsk to Leningrad. 
but the family was intent on escaping from the Soviet Union. It didn't get far. Before the plane could leave Soviet airspace, it was diverted to a military airfield near Freiburg and was then stormed by police. A stewardess and three passengers were killed in the shootout. Then Mrs. Ovechkin was shot by one of her sons by her own request, and then four other family members committed suicide before that incident ended. That's enough mayhem. Next week we'll look into the British European Airlines Flight 530, also known as the Mistburgert Accident which was a controlled flight into terrain of a Douglas C-47 Skytrain in the Mistgebirget Mountain in Itzvold, Norway, and that was in August 1946. Insufficient training was blamed on this accident, which saw three of the five crew on board killed, but all ten passengers survived. During the Second World War, training was quick. They were turning over pilots in weeks. After the war, and as passenger traffic increased, there would be more attention placed on training pilots for an exciting career, that was interspersed with long periods of boredom. How to maintain focus on the flight deck? But that's for next week. So until then, aviate, navigate and communicate safely. Goodbye.